0: Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news stories and strategies. And
1: now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 190. And today in the show, we are joined by Joe Hamilton, a wildlife biologist and the founder of the Quality Deer Management Association. And we are going to be chatting with him about conservation, the QDMA, hunting in the South, and much, much more. All right, welcome to another episode of the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today, here in a little bit, we're going to be joined by Joe Hamilton. And Joe is the founder of the Quality Deer Management Association. So he is just a a wealth of information. He has a lot of interesting insight into kind of the evolution of the hunting world um, so there's going to be a lot of interesting things to talk about when it comes to that. Uh, I want to talk to him a little bit about um, you know hunting and what we've got going on this month here in December. And he's going to have an interesting perspective there, too, because he's down in South Carolina. Uh, we don't talk to as many people as we probably should about hunting down in the South, so I want to cover that. But then maybe, maybe just as important as all of that is the fact that Joe is just a great storyteller. Um, I went down to... Um, get my deer steward certification down in Missouri, maybe six or seven years ago. It's this course that the Quality Deer Management Association puts on. It's a two-day event. And Joe was down there for that. And I just remember sitting there and just being, like, captivated whenever he talked. He just has that voice and that presence um, that just kind of sucks you in. And you just want to listen to the guy. So I'm excited just just to listen to the guy today. Um, and he actually has a has a new book out with many of his stories that I think is going to be pretty cool too. So we'll talk about all those things. Um, but before we do that, before we get to the good storyteller, we need to take a few minutes for some bad storytellers. <laughs> <laughs> me and me and Dan um, with our, our weekly preamble. Do you have any bad stories, Dan, that we should cover
2: today? <laughs> oh, dude. I, I was a hardcore drinker for like 10 years. Of course I got bad stories.
1: <laughs> Maybe not those stories. <laughs> oh, okay,
2: okay. All right. I tell you what. <laughs> you, know, you, you know we often uh, talk a little bit about social media greed, antler greed, and, mm. and stuff like that. Facebook envy, all that. Yeah, Facebook envy. Man, I got it. You did. I got it today. How did that I, happen? It's, it's like <sighs> – You got a filled tag. I got you, a field tag. What are you but getting? Guess, but, but guess what? The guy who shares the farm with me, I saw a picture of the buck that he shot. Oh, and no. Do you, do you remember the buck that I showed you at the beginning of the year? The big eight with the split G2? Is that the one that you missed? No, that's the bigger one of the eights. Oh, okay. So, but still, yeah. a giant eight-pointer. Yeah, Giant eight-pointer. He ended up shooting it during shotgun season. Oh. And, and I just was like – I had this mix of emotion of awesome, dude. He shot it. Glad, you know, it was a mature buck. You know, you want to shoot mature bucks, whatever. But at the same time, it, like I got this struggle on the inside going, I wish that was me. Oh, yeah. Not necessarily hating on him, but just like, man, I what do I need to do to, to hunt more or to, you know, expand my opportunities or, or whatever. You know, buy land, get a second tag, start shotgun hunting, you know, whatever. Go to another state. I just like – I didn't regret what I did, but I was just like, I want to do more.
1: Oh yeah. That's, that's totally understandable. It's man. I know, um, right. When someone else kills a buck, it, it, of course we want to be happy for them. Right. We are happy for them. Celebrate that, but it is still human to have a yeah. little bit of that. Dang. I wish that was me. <laughs> right.
2: And it wouldn't have had, like if, I don't know, let's say it, a guy you share that prop, a property with, or your neighbor ends up killing Holyfield. Yeah. You know, this, this isn't my property. This isn't, um, you know, uh, I don't own it. I have permission to hunt on it just like he does. Um, but it was a buck that I'd been following all year. Um, it was a buck that I'd followed from the previous year as well. And I just was, you know, I, it's almost like I was envisioning myself killing this deer whether it was this year or next year. And then someone else went and did it. Um, and it just was like, Oh man, I wish that was me. But at the same time I sent the dude, the e- an email and I was like, Hey man, congratulations on a stud buck. You know, just, uh, that's awesome. And I just asked him, you know, where, where did you kill him? Cause I wanted to find out more information of how, how he was traveling or the deer patterns. And, uh, he hasn't gotten back to me yet. Cause I think he, he's at work, but or he's, like, or
1: he's like, yeah, of course Dan wants to know where I killed him. I'm not giving him my intel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, man, I, I know how it goes. It happens. It definitely happens. Right. But so, I was thinking uh, about another part of what you said there, though, about how you wish you could get out more. Um, yeah. How many days did you actually get to hunt this season? Because you tagged out on, like, day four of your rut vacation. Is that right?
2: Um, Let me pull up a calendar real quick. I can t- actually tell you. I started my rut vacation on what see, my first night in the tree stand officially was Friday the third and I killed my deer on Wednesday the eighth. So, so one, two, three, four, five. So like five full days of hunting and then you go back into October and I think I hunted four days. So And and I was thinking about that, too. You know, you bring up a good point. Like, man, 365 days in a tree stand. Well, Well, I got to go hunt or 365 days in a year. Yeah. And my hobby. Yes. There's there's other days like doing mineral trimming out tree stands that may take up four days. Checking trail cameras. Let's add two more days. But, so now you're at five and then that, it's like 17 total days throughout the entire season.
1: Yeah, that's that's kind of like, yes, yeah, so like of the whole year, you just got to 10 days actually doing the thing that you think about all year, dream about right. all year, plan for all year. Um, I mean,
2: so how my question to you is, how do we and what I mean, we I mean, guys like us who have. More, more guys like me than guys like I was going to say, (laughs) I'm a little bit of an outlier. Right. But let's say the average Joe, the working guy, the family guy, you know, how, how do we then take and show those facts and statistics to our wives or significant others and say, listen, there's 365 days in a year. My passion, I got 15 days to do it. Why are you complaining (laughs) on 15 days? You know what I mean? How how, how do we have that conversation?
1: Man, I don't know. I mean, I feel like it's, 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 it's that it's, you just have to somehow have a conversation. I don't know the right way to do it. I, I I have struggles with it sometimes too. Um, Now I, I have a kind of a get out of jail free card because I can say it's my career. So I get a lot more, I get a lot more leeway and I, than most people. And I understand that. Um, but still, it can be a challenge too. So, for me and Kylie, at least, the best thing has just been like trying to over communicate about things. Like, yeah. I need to, I need to plan things way out ahead of time. I need to like I try to consult her on okay, if I was gonna be gone for a week, would it be better this week for you or that week? Or you know, would it be better this year if I do like three day trips? Like three, three day trips instead of one 10 day trip or yeah. different things like that. Just trying to find little ways to compromise. Um, but I, I don't know. I don't know what the right answer to this. Um, I know I'm going to have an, it's going to be a new challenge starting next year with, uh, having a baby. I know that yeah. you've, um, experienced the, the added pressures of all that. So I think it's, I don't know, challenge Damn. that we all need I- to kind of navigate in our own unique
2: way. Oh man. I just like, I'm sitting here, and people are still out there hunting and I think I'm going to be able to get a a crack at um some late season hunting but you know it's never as good you just want to experience the good parts of the years as long as humanly possible and I made the I made the decision to shoot a deer right Mm -hmm. and and uh that when that happens that pretty much puts an end to you know hunting in Iowa especially if you know for me and in bow hunting yes there's other opportunities but It's just not the same. Like, I could do gun hunting, but I'm not as passionate about gun hunting as I am archery. So, yeah.
1: Have you thought about getting a tag in, like, Illinois or hunt northern Missouri or western Illinois or something that's not too far away from you? You, Then you can have that added bow season time.
2: Right, right. Yeah. And I've put a lot of thought into it. Like, uh, going to Nebraska. I mean, even a longer trip is okay with me. It's just that, like, I think Missouri and. I think nebraska on the 15th the uh their firearm season season starts so i don't i don't know if you can bow hunt at the same time as that but it probably wouldn't be as good i thought about going over to illinois but from what i hear about illinois it's similar to iowa where there is public ground but there's not a lot of it and not to sound arrogant i've had a lot of people also invite me onto their properties and say hey dan come hunt come hunt my property. You can kill whatever you want. I don't want to be that guy. Yeah. You know, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to run into a situation where it's, uh, well, I let you on my property. Now you have to let me on your property yeah. or I don't want to use whatever status they think I have to go and and kill a big deer.
1: Yeah. I've, I've always felt uncomfortable with that too. I, I just like yeah. to just would rather do things on my own and
2: yeah, absolutely, absolutely.
1: But I, but I get what you're saying. Um, man, I don't know. I, um, there's something I just to need be... to have
2: a blood transfusion with guy, a guy like Andy May. <laughs> <where> yeah. <laughs> I get some of his DNA in my system, and I just walk into the woods and kill big deer.
1: Man, he is a great example, though, of somebody who can, even with a family, even with a job that does not give him like, almost any vacation time, Right. He still has been able to find a way to fit in short out of state trips and get it done. Yep. Um he's a he's a great example, that's for sure. So, I had a short out of state trip uh, that I kind of want to talk about real quick here um, before we get Joe on. Are you are you right. interested in hearing about that?
2: Uh, yeah, because you sent me a picture of a really good looking buck uh, on trail camera going after him tonight, and then I didn't hear anything about it. So, what's the deal?
1: All right, so um. You know, you, you've followed my hunting season, all season yeah. with me, as we've talked about things, the hunt for Holyfield and how it was always like, I would hunt one spot and then the next day I'd be somewhere different, but he'd be there or he'd be one spot. I'd go there the next day and he was somewhere else, that kind of thing, you know, over and over and over again. Um, well, my Ohio season now has taken that turn as well. <laughs> so get this, I've got four days to spend in Ohio. Mm -hmm. I, uh, was in Seattle for two days last week when we talked last, I got home late Wednesday night, early Thursday morning. I load up the truck, drive to Ohio. My goal was to get to Ohio in time to get out to hunt that first night. So I get there and I'm getting all my stuff ready. Um, no, we talked about this already, right? We did talk about this. Um, so that first night, right. I wanted to head out, but the landowner locked his keys in the van. Yeah, we and talked about that. Yes. Okay, so that was night number one, so I basically didn't get to hunt at all. I just walked to the edge of the field and watched for the last, like, 40 minutes of the night. Night number one, bad luck of keys getting locked in the landowner's truck caused me to miss out on that hunt. All right, so night number two, I get there, I head in, get to my stand. Um, long story short on that night is that towards, like, the last half hour 45 minutes of daylight, I spot a really nice buck walking um away from me on the other side of this finger of timber. Imagine, um, all of the, the stories I'm going to tell you these next three days all involve this one little spot, hold up your hand and make a peace sign, but facing you facing you sort of. So you've got the peace sign up at that V. Mm-hmm. Um, imagine the palm of your hand and the two fingers sticking up. That is a cornfield. And then the fingers are fingers of that corn sticking up. Okay. And then the space in between the peace sign that gap there is a finger of timber. All right. Can you envision this?
2: Yep. I'm looking at it.
1: Okay. So on night number two, the first night I'm actually able to hunt, I'm sitting on the Western finger of corn um, on the Western edge of that timber finger that's sticking down. All right.
2: Okay. Quick question. Is the corn picked? Corn is picked. Okay. Okay. Yep. Continue.
1: So I'm sitting there and like I said, like half hour before dark, big buck shows up, but he had come from the eastern finger of corn heading south and walked straight down into the palm into the palm of my hand and then onto the neighbors. All that time period either behind the tree, so I couldn't get a shot, or out of range. So night number three, I said, all right, I'm going to try to hunt in that area where he came out. And let me take a step back. After that hunt, I pulled trail cameras and one of the camera cards had him on camera passing by a tree stand I have right there um, where he came out. So I had him on camera and then I saw him like 10 minutes later when he was out in the field and had a tree stand right there. So night number three, now I'm going to go and I'm going to relocate and hunt. Now, again, we're looking at our peace sign right where the two corn fingers come together at the end of that timbered point. I was going to sit on yep. the ground right there so that if he came out same place he did last night, I would have a shot at him. I would shoot into that inside corner or if he came out on the Western finger, like other deer have done in the past, I could shoot there too. And the wind was good for that. So I'm getting, I'm, I left the hotel room. I'm driving to my property and about five minutes before I get to the property, I all of a sudden have this horrible sinking feeling in my gut when I realize I left my scent crusher bag with all of my hunting clothes in it in the hotel room, yeah, thirty thirty five 35 to 40 minutes away. So I'm like, I have to go back. I have no hunting clothing at all. And the reason why I take it out of my truck was because to, to, to run this thing, you need to be plugged in and you can plug it into your car and, um, use like a cigarette adapter. And so I tried to do that. So I had it in the front seat of my truck. I turned it on and was running when I was driving home the night before, but like I've heard, it's not a good idea to have that ozone in a closed space um, and I was like, you know, I don't like running this thing while I'm in here, um, so I'm not going to do that. So I'll just take it into the hotel room tonight, plug it into the wall, run it real quick there, and then use it the next day. But long story short, I, I you know, I, taking a step back, I say long story short way too much. <laughs> and then you keep talking. <laughs> and then I keep talking. <laughs> I do, I don't end up making it a short story. <laughs> I've caught myself doing it. It's like my other that being said. That's right. So. That being said, long story short, um, <laughs> I I realize I don't have any of my hunting clothing, so I have to turn around, drive all the way back, 35, 40 minutes back to hotel room, get my gear. I finally get back to the property an hour and 15 minutes or something like that later. It's now very late, but I'm going to try. So I'm sneaking into the property, and of course, when I get to within sight of that spot that I want to sit, there's already does out feeding there. So I can't I can't get there. So I hunker down, I crawl on the edge of the opposite side of the field up to the spot where these deer had came across the night before. So I thought, well, if these deer come out where they did last year, if they continue traveling, they'd eventually cross the field and come by me. Well, of course that didn't happen, um, but a big buck stepped out right where the buck did the night before, and I would have been able to get a shot at him if I was sitting where I wanted to be, but of course I couldn't. So I had to watch him stay right there. He didn't travel across the field to where I was at. He stayed right there, and I just had to sit there kicking myself for forgetting my clothing and not being able to be set up where I wanted to be set up. Right. And, then, and then not only that, that was bad enough, but then it's like it's after dark, and the buck's still out there feeding, and some does come out. So I'm like, all right, I'm just going to stay here, be quiet, and let them move off so I don't spook them, and then maybe tomorrow night I can get a shot. So I'm sitting there, I'm sitting there, and I keep on hearing a noise behind me, getting closer and closer. And then I turn and I'm thinking, okay, there's some kind of critter coming up close here. And I finally see like five yards away from me is a possum, a really big possum. And I'm sitting on the ground, like not in a blind or on a chair. I'm just on the ground. And this possum keeps getting closer and closer and closer. Finally, he's like three yards or four yards away. And I'm like, all right, this thing's going to walk like right over top of me. I need to scare him away. So I start like shaking some leaves and making like just making some like noises at him to try to scare him away, like make him realize that there's a big thing here he doesn't want to come towards. Instead of that scaring him away, he starts hissing, and he charges me. I'm charged by a possum. <laughs> and I'm laying on the ground, basically, and this thing's coming right at my face. So I'm, like, forced to jump up and, like, try to kick at him so I'm not attacked by a rabid possum. Did you kick him? I didn't kick him. He he stopped before. But, I mean, right there. It was, like, just about to have to kick a possum in the face.
2: <laughs> oh, man, I've done that. Did you really? <laughs> I've kicked a possum, yeah. Well,
1: it didn't quite come to that, but but it was... <laughs> It was almost came to blows, but of course, because I had to jump up to fight off this possum, it spooked, it spooked those does on the other side of the field and they took off. Um, and so it kind of alerted that buck. He stayed there, but just staring in my direction for a long time. So I kind of spooked those deer, which was upsetting to me. So not only did I not get a shot at him, but then because of a, a possum attack, I spooked these deer. So that was night number three. Night number four, I'm like, all right, there's no way I'm not going to get into this spot I've wanted to hunt. I'm going to get there really early. I'm not going to forget my clothes. I'm going to avoid possums. I'm going to get to the finger of this timber. I'm going to get set up there, and I'll be able to shoot to this inside corner where this buck has come out the last two nights. I get there. I'm all set up. I'm thinking this is looking good, that the evening's coming along very well. And then an hour before dark, I spot movement out in the field right where I was sitting the night before (laughs) And there's this stupid big eight pointer comes running out from right where I was at the night before, and then comes running across the field the opposite direction where I can't shoot him either. So, man, it's just been
2: that kind of season, man. Man, you have literally <laughs> been in the wrong place every every month. time.
1: <laughs> I mean, I cannot uh, catch a break. <laughs> And it's just, maybe it just reaffirms what all of our listeners have been thinking for years now, that I'm just one of the world's worst deer hunters. (laughs) Uh, yeah. So that was disappointing, but it was nice to see a good buck, um, three nights in a row. I, you know, I'm not entirely sure if it was the same deer, all three nights. I think it was a different deer, um, at least two of the nights. Um, but it was always, it was a nice eight pointer, like somewhere in that, like Probably four year old, maybe like 130 ish, maybe a little bigger, eight pointer type deer.
2: Um, was this a muzzle loader hunt? This was, yep. It was their okay. firearm right. season. So um, they were still, when they came out, they were still too far for you to shoot.
1: Yeah. Like that first right. night, by the time he cleared the trees, he was probably 250 or something like that, or 300. And with my muzzle loader, I'm not shooting past 150. Um, and then the second night, he was, yeah probably about the same distance, but I was looking at him from the opposite direction. And then um, the final night, he maybe was like 170, 160, 170, 180, maybe somewhere around that range, but he was running by the time I saw him, kind of running across the field and then disappeared into the timber on the other way. So
2: no shots. Well, I don't know. I don't even know what to tell you, man. Just like (laughs) Maybe you should just... Go back to basics, and when I mean basics, I mean no knowledge of hunting at all, and just go to the same tree stand, <laughs> the exact same time, the exact same tree stand for like five days in a row. That's
1: that's exactly what I was thinking. I'm like, you know what? Screw all this, like keeping the deer on their feet. I'm gonna trick yeah. them by never changing. I'm just gonna sit in the same <laughs> spot the the whole rest of the season. I'm gonna pick one spot and hunt it like twenty days in a row. <laughs> Just do the complete opposite of what any half decent deer hunter would do, and uh, that yeah, of what we work. talk about. Yeah, yeah. They've maybe these deer are figuring us out. They know our our new tactics, and uh, they're headless. Well,
2: uh, evolution, right? I mean, deer have to evolve to survive. Uh, whether that's you know becoming you know podcast having, listeners. Yeah, exactly. I mean, maybe <laughs> maybe Holyfield. Has a, uh, is a subscriber to the Wired to Hunt podcast.
1: That would explain a lot this year.
2: <laughs> oh man. you you see him the next time you see him, you actually put the, put him in the binos and you're like, are those earbuds in his ears? <laughs> He's got the new AirPods. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh man. Yeah. So, um, so that's my story. That's Ohio. I'm uh, gonna start hunting Michigan now. Again tomorrow, though, we got a cold front yeah. that just came through today. I'm gonna get after it, and um, I have one piece of good news to share with you today. It's
2: twins. Your wife's having twins. <laughs> no, no twins.
1: <laughs> um, better news than that. Well, that I don't, I don't know. I mean, that would be great, I guess, but it'd also be very scary. Um, yeah. The baby is doing very well, though. By the way, good, good. Yep, coming along very well. We're down to the final like ten weeks or something like that. Um, but the good news is that as of last Friday, okay. which was the day after Michigan's gun season, yep. I had visual confirmation nice. that Holyfield had made it. Nice. So the big guy, as of Friday, was still alive. Um, now, muzzleloader season opened that next day, so of course yeah. there's still some people out there, but much fewer, much, uh, much less of a chance of him being killed. So right,
2: the and hunt you stayed out of it too, right? So, I mean, yeah. that whole sanctuary, uh, theory that you've, uh, that we've discussed here, you're that you're going to stay off of it. Uh, you've stayed off of it and hopefully he's found sanctuary on your, uh, on your farm.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, that's why I think, I think that, I think that probably had a big Big part in why he was able to survive, because he has that place he can hunker down in. And not only did he survive, but then also the three-year-old that I've been praying would survive, the buck I'm calling Survivor, um, he made it too. So the two best bucks I had on my property this year, both of them made it through firearm season. So that's really encouraging and um, gives me something to be excited about for this late season with Holyfield and gives me something to be excited about for next year with Survivor. Um, So. I'm going to get out there tomorrow night with this cold front, assuming the wind uh, stays good for me, and um, hunt them the next couple days with these really cold temperatures. And hopefully, finally, we'll have a happy story to share.
2: Yeah, absolutely, man. I don't know how many guys out there are pulling for you still, but I'm pulling for you. And, uh, you know, if you get any more mature bucks on your property, you're probably going to have to open an outfitting business. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't know if, uh, if one mature buck would draw that many people.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's enough for me. That's right. So I guess on that note, we should probably wrap this up. We've had a pretty long intro here. Um, so let's take a break for our SICKA story, and then we'll get Joe on the line. And then um, hopefully next week we'll have a, a story to share.
3: For this week's SICKA story, we're joined by Jordan Miller of Run to Gun. Who's going to be telling us about an elk hunt that ended at ten steps?
4: One of my favorite Sitka moments was this year down in New Mexico drew a really good archery unit, and uh, we had six days to hunt. We used all six. We were down there on the last day, hiked into one of my buddy Justin's favorite spots, hiking about a mile and a half on this long ridge, and finally got this bull to bugle. We had we had him in. We pulled him all the way into. About 40, 50 yards, he just hung up in some brush. We called his cows all the way past us, and he just busted out. Hope we had one last chance to get up on him, and we broke down the mountain, cut up this next ridge, and we heard another bull bugling. We got up right in between them, Justin made one little cow call, and that bull we were after came just tearing down the side of the mountain to get up to that other bull, and little did we know it that he was going to work about 10 steps from us, quartered right in, took a shot, had been practicing my bowl all summer long at about 100 yards just to get ready for 50 yards, and we drilled a 6x7 public land bowl at 10 steps, one of my absolute favorite Sitka moments.
3: On Jordan's hunt, he was wearing Sitka's mountain pants and mountain vest. If you'd like to create a Sitka story of your own, or to learn more about Sitka's technical hunting apparel, visit sitkagear.com. All right, with me now is Joe Hamilton. Welcome to
1: the show, Joe.
0: Thanks, Mark. I'm very happy to be
1: here. Yeah, and I'm excited to have you on here as well. And uh, I mentioned uh, before we started recording, actually, as I did the introduction to the podcast, that when I went through the QDMA Deer Steward course, uh, maybe five or six years ago now it was, um, and you were there, we were down in northern Missouri, and I just became captivated. By your stories, every time you were were talking to the group or sharing a story or experience, um, I just kind of found myself just fully engaged and so interested in what you had to say. So, so because of that, I've been particularly excited to make this episode happen because I know our our listeners are going to enjoy the same thing. So, so that that being said, I guess before we. Dive into the the many different topics. I was hoping we could cover. Could you just could you just kind of bring us up to speed on how you got to this point? Um, maybe maybe especially what you did before the QDMA, and then we could dive a little bit more deeply into that story. Um, but but what was Joe Hamilton doing in the years that led up to that moment?
0: Well, in the very early years, starting at age nine, I became a hunter and that led me to the University of Georgia to get a degree in forestry and then to follow that up with a master's degree in wildlife biology and I specialized in a black bear project for my master's thesis and then I came to work in South Carolina as a deer research biologist in 1979 and Spent seven years living in a deer pen and conducting a variety of research projects. Uh, Most notably was the production of the Scale for Aging Fetuses. That was uh, the biggest part of that long-time project. And then I moved then from the northeastern part of the coastal area down to the southeastern corner, the deer-rich low country, and became a regional biologist. And in that capacity, I was working not just with deer, but all species of wildlife, but uh, focusing on deer because I had nearly 800 properties that I I dealt with directly on what we called at that time the antlerless deer quota program, uh, better known as the doe quota program. And a little different there for our state than most states in that we issued antlerless tags or doe tags to properties and I had to stay up with those properties uh, each year and decide how many antlerless tags they were to get and all the while I was helping them out with uh, changing their perspective on buck harvests uh, to take more bucks to the older age classes before they were harvested. And I think the thing to—it's really important here is that in the eastern part of South Carolina, then and even now, we have a four-and-a-half-month season up until this year with no buck limit whatsoever. And uh, we, we do have, for the first time around, a, a buck limit this year, and it's going quite well. limit is five which is still quite liberal. But uh, that's what that's what I got involved with professionally in those early years. And and then uh, from the mid-'80s for the next few years, I had more and more requests from hunters who had tired of, of shooting a lot of young bucks, and they were concerned that uh, antler development was down and and uh, body weights were down. Well, it was because nearly 90% of their annual harvest was made up by year-and-a-half-old bucks. So they said, what can we do to make a difference, to, to crawl out of this hole we've dug for ourselves? But well, it was very timely that in 1981 I had met Al Brothers, who is the co-author of the very famous book Producing Quality Whitetails, which came out in 1975. I met Al in Texas, spent a few days with him, and then the next year, I was one of the co-hosts for the Southeast Deer Study Group meeting. That's a a group that had just started four years before that, uh, consisting of professionals from about 16 or 17 southeastern states. Well, we were having this meeting in Charleston, South Carolina, and... It was my duty to come up with a keynote speaker. So, with the new interest in in turning tradition around in the Low Country, and now my connection to Al, I invited him to come uh, to that meeting, our fifth annual Southeast Deer Study Group meeting, and deliver the keynote address. Well, he's quite a deal maker. He thought for a minute. He said, "Jose, I will." be there I'll even come a few days early and I'll stay a few days after the main meeting as long as you can assure that I'll have a group to talk with every night (laughs) and the other part of that deal is you normally have 150 professional people at that meeting if you'll promise me you'll have 150 deer hunters to match those numbers I'll be there Wow. And you you got to know that uh, Al Brothers is a man of commitment. He is uh, he's rock-solid biologically. He had a misfortune in doing a deer survey from a helicopter a few years before that, broke his back, and his legs were paralyzed. Didn't slow him down, though. What I wanted to point out was he drove a pickup truck, using hand controls, all the way from Laredo, Texas, to Charleston, South Carolina, just to give that keynote address and to meet with select groups of hunters. So when any kind of a leader shows that kind of conviction to a cause, it's easy to fall in line and follow that person. So that was sort of the beginning of, the idea of quality deer management uh, infused into the thought processes of our uh, deer hunters here in the southeastern part of South Carolina. And uh, fortunately, there were enough people with large enough acreages to start uh, on a quality deer management approach. And they made a difference pretty quickly. And the doubting Thomases that were near them fell in line pretty quickly said hmm seems to be working for you maybe we can try it as well the bottom line is several years after that we then had nearly three million acres in the eastern part of South Carolina on quality deer management guidelines and that was done voluntarily uh, just despite the long season and the liberal buck limits so that's that's my history with uh, with my profession and with quality deer management. Uh, we, we got enough people involved in those early years that we needed to organize them. So in 1988, we started the South Carolina Quality Deer Management Association. Interest uh, went beyond our state borders very quickly, so we decided to drop South Carolina from our name, and we ultimately became the Quality Deer Management Association, which uh, we are now, uh, with members in all 50 states, half a dozen foreign countries, and most of the Canadian provinces. Uh, nearly 60,000 members, and going strong. So wow. here we are.
1: Here you <laughs> are. That's it's pretty incredible to hear how, you know, some some. You know personal relationships and some different things like that can lead to something that has has grown to such a such a powerful and po- positive force within the hunting community today what were those what were those early years like when you guys first founded the quality deer management association uh what what were you guys trying to achieve at that point and you know how, how did it grow from there to such a you know a substantial organization
0: now but well, we had some obstacles to uh, overcome. Uh, as I mentioned, nearly 90% of our buck harvest was comprised of year-and-a-half-old bucks. Uh, the other problem was there was a reluctance among most of these deer hunters to take any female deer. That That went very much against tradition, and... Even when I moved to this county that I live in now in 1985, there were petitions circulating for people to sign to make it illegal to shoot does in in this county. Um, that was that was a hurdle. Got around that through education. Um, I decided that I would start a radio program that I, I did once a week. I wrote prolifically for uh, magazines and, and local newspapers. Uh, the biologists that I talked with and I decided we'd have a contest to see if we could average giving a talk a week. And we did that. And And in the course of a couple of years, we'd contacted thousands of people. And we we had those... Pioneers that 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 contacted us initially that wanted to make some change, they not only started passing up young bucks, they started taking a number of antlerless deer, and their neighbors saw very quickly. Hmm, things seem to be working for you pretty well. Your body weights are getting better. Uh, your antler development is picking up because you're shooting older bucks. That's that's kind of how it started, and it took years to get people to to harvest enough antlerless deer to keep their deer herd in balance with the habitat conditions. But all the while, bucks were getting older. The hunters were uh, going from one level of management to the next. Uh, All we were trying to do initially was take a significant portion of the year-and-a-half-old bucks to two-and-a-half before they were harvested and then when when hunters got involved in that approach, they decided, well, we'll just start taking more to the three and a half year old category and you know the rest is history. There are people now that are taking deer not on the basis of the kind of antlers they have, but the shape of their bodies they're They're shooting four and a half and five and a half year old bucks, regardless of their antler development and and the hunters are happy, the deer are healthy and things are working pretty well. The other factor that, that started to come into play in those early days was the idea that maybe we can do something with habitat and, and create food plots and, and then work more with our foresters and and uh, try to integrate forestry and wildlife management and, and even uh, work on fallow fields and try to make them productive. Uh, Craig Harper University of Tennessee, of course, is a great proponent of that, uh, trying to uh, manage old fields for natural vegetation, which deer have been making a living on for forever. And uh, so it's all come together. And I, I think the the thing to to really boast about now is is not so much the size of our organization. We're 60,000 strong. But the impact of our educational efforts has been nationwide. Uh, it, it's uh, to the point that in 1999 there were more antlerless deer harvested that year than antlered. That came only through education and persistence and, and just you know, driving that message home that that's what the deer herd needed. Uh, fairly even sex ratio, numbers in balance with the habitat conditions, and and then a few years after that, uh, we've been we've been tracking the percent of year and a half old bucks in the harvest since about '89, and at that time when we started, it was approaching 80 percent nationwide. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, that number bottomed out at. Uh, Around 34 percent of of the bucks killed that year, and and then a little bit higher percent of three and a half year old bucks were harvested, and that happened for two years in a row. And I would assume this this past year it'll it'll probably hold true that we're harvesting more three and a half and older bucks than year and a half old bucks. I don't see that changing. Uh, uh, backwards, it, it will more than likely just get better and better. Yeah. But, but the the impact of our educational efforts uh, is really something to boast about. Uh, we're uh, we're very proud that our education has has gone to that point. And so, the the deer herd has benefited from that, and certainly deer hunters have as well.
1: Absolutely. So, what do you think about then? Where, where the QDMA, where the Quality Deer Management Association is today, given some of these goals being accomplished that you just mentioned, how do you feel about where the organization and you know the impacts of the organization are today? And then, what do you think about the future? Where are things going? What kind of impact can the QDMA have in the years to come?
0: Uh, I'm glad you mentioned that, Mark, because we are at a, a turning point. We have have proven that with our our educational capacity and and our the variety of programs that we have that that we can uh, meet the challenges of of the present. And and we've done that. We've we've helped uh, take more bucks of the older age classes, we've helped balance sex ratios, helped balance deer numbers with habitat conditions. What we're looking at now uh, would be a relatively long list of of changes that, that some are even accelerating. For example, we just got a survey, uh, the results of a survey recently that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, conducts every five years. And in the last five years, we have lost over 2 million deer hunters. Um, so we were at a high a few years ago of maybe 14 and a half or so million, and we're down. I think it's 2.1 million deer hunters. Uh, it, there are several reasons for that. Number one, uh, people are the baby boomers are aging out of being very actively involved in hunting. Uh, number two, the thing that's going on is we have uh, a problem with. Recruitment of young hunters into deer hunting because of so many diversions, sports especially, or keeping kids busy these days, and and uh, so we have low recruitment and and lower retention. So we're going to have to face those problems. We have predator problems that are seems to be that uh, they're getting worse by the year. And it's not just coyotes, it's uh, black bears are on the increase, and in some cases bobcats are as well. But the, the coyote is the one animal that sort of changed my life as a biologist in the southeast. When I first encountered them in the late 70s, I, I told the people around me, I said, well, Mother Nature will solve that problem, because if, if you have a, a canine in this part of the world that's not on heartworm tablets, They're not going to last long. And then there's parvovirus, there's rabies, distemper, uh, on down the line mange. There are a lot of things that will keep these coyotes from being very effective as predators. Boy, was I wrong on that. Uh, We still don't have many coyotes dying of old age, but they can do enough damage in their first few years to change our lives as deer managers, and they have. In those early years, we were uh, complacent, realizing that the deer herd, uh, the, the females were having more, averaging more than one fawn per doe. Now, in some areas, and even in my neighborhood, uh, it takes three or four does to bring one fawn into the fall population, and that—that's that's the definition of recruitment. It's the number of fawns not that are just born in the summer, but those that are actually recruited into the fall population. So we've had to change our entire way of thinking about uh, prescribing deer harvest on an annual basis. We've had to pull the reins back a little bit on being so aggressive at harvesting does. Um, We've had to focus on the time of the year those does are taken. Uh, I've been a proponent of now taking adult does late in the season to lengthen that, that uh, parental bond uh, between the doe and the fawn to uh, give the fawn that much more of a jump start uh, for future survival. So we've had a lot of changes to make in, in the face of this new predator. Uh, there are places, uh, Pennsylvania, for example, where the bear population is, is still increasing, And the study done a few years ago indicated that black bears actually killed more fawns than did coyotes. Not many more. I mean, it was like uh, 15 fawns killed by bears and 14 killed by coyotes just in one area. But uh, still, bears are on the increase in numbers and in their occupied range. Uh, North Carolina is a good example of bears extending their range especially in the eastern part of the state, from those coastal counties moving more and more inland, and uh, bears have been proven to be very effective predators of fawns. So, those are some of the changes we've had to deal with, and and we are, uh, as an organization, going to be really pushing more and more research to find out more about the effect of these predators on deer populations. We've got to do all we can to work with mentoring programs to to bring more kids on board, to hang on to those that we have. And um, so we've got new challenges to face. We've got disease problems that are are tied maybe indirectly to the the captive deer industry. Uh, Chronic wasting disease is the main disease that we're concerned about uh... that's a, a disease that's always fatal once the deer gets it it uh, does not live through it and it, all the while it's alive it sheds prions uh, into the soil that can affect uh, other deer and um... we're having to watch that very closely it, it also seems that uh... That a disease we've been living with here for forever was uh, EHD or epizootic hemorrhagic disease. That's a viral disease that's transmitted by the little noceum gnats. That disease is spreading northward and westward, north, northwestward, uh, into areas that heretofore had no experience with that disease. And when it does move into a new area, those deer have no background, no antibodies built up, and it really hits them hard. So they're experiencing, especially in the northeast in the last few years, I think 2012 was a particularly bad year, and then maybe another couple years ago, uh, 50 to 75 percent of some local deer populations were lost to that disease. We don't see near that degree of mortality in the southeast because our deer have a history with the disease. There are some new problems, though, that uh, there are a variety of serotypes of the disease, and we keep seeing new serotypes pop up. And, and these, uh, even in the southeast, are causing higher mortality because the deer have no uh, history with that serotype of the The virus. So, yeah, our future is is uh, clouded with obstacles. But again, uh, there's no better organization around than the QDMA to to identify and to face those those obstacles uh, through research and through education. And uh, we're we're poised to to do that. We uh, we've got a tremendous. force of biologists on hand not a large number but educationally we're about as deep as anybody can be around here and, and mark as you well know with these deer steward courses that we have we're educating hundreds of people every year and and that's what it's going to take to to uh to be able to keep the, your ear to the ground and to know what's going on with the local deer herds and and to report problems back to the uh, proper officials, uh, we need to know about these problems so we can uh, identify them and then come up with ways to ameliorate some of those problems so yeah uh, every you know the future changes for everybody, but I, I think we're we're capable of of meeting those challenges
1: i hundred percent agree with you and um as you mentioned, You know, through this, uh, these different challenges, challenges you mentioned, I think that they impact a wide array of deer hunters. Not just, you know, private landowners who have a ton of ground that manage deer, but these things impact all of us. And based on that, based on the fact that you're saying that the Quality Deer Management Association is going to be focusing on these types of challenges, and given some of the other things I've heard about the goals and how things might be shifting a little bit in the future with the QDMA is it fair to say that that your your organization is wanting to to make a very clear statement that the QDMA is for all deer hunters and not just maybe the stereotypical the stereotype which was this I think there's this miss um, This misunderstanding with a lot of people. They thought QDM was just for rich guys with a bunch of property who wanted to grow really big antler deer. That was kind of the negative stereotype of what quality deer management meant to some people. Um, I, I think anyone who really understands the organization and the tenants of it understands that's not the case, but it seems like now from the things I'm hearing the organization itself is is trying to make it very clear that, that that's not the case and that you are focused on things that impact all deer hunters, and especially with your new goals that I saw come out this year, that really seems to be um, it's strongly asserted and very clear. Am, am I right in, in seeing that in that interpretation?
0: Yeah, you are, and I, I can understand uh, how we got stereotyped in those early years because the people that came to us, were those that controlled a large enough tract of land to manage effectively as a, an individual unit without regard to what their neighbors were doing. Uh, these were not just landowners, but these were organized hunting clubs that leased, in, in many cases, thousands of acres. And we have, since day one, been an organization for all deer hunters. And we've we've begged their involvement uh, from an educational point of view. Everybody needs to know what's going on with with deer, and and those people that uh, have relatively small areas to hunt on have been brought together with a, with a fairly recent approach for QDM cooperatives. Uh, Michigan, for example, has uh, several hundred. QDM co-ops going. Uh, We've also hired two people in Missouri uh, that work with co-ops on a full-time basis. Uh, That has been the approach. The other thing I wanted to point out, though, was that what many hunters are not aware of is that the QDMA is very active with advocacy issues. Uh, These are issues that the local State and federal level we average uh, being involved in about a hundred issues a year <clears throat> and these range anywhere from access to hunting to Sunday hunting to changing the, the minimum age for for young hunters to a, uh, a younger age to get them into the fold of hunting sooner um now, I think there are some states where you've got to be 12 years old or older before you can actually carry a gun hunting. Uh, that's certainly not the case here in South Carolina. We have no minimum age, and and there are some very uh, precocial youngsters that, that are killing their first deer at age five or six, might be too young, uh, in the opinion of some people, but these kids grew up with hunting, and, and uh, by the time they're six, they're ready to get involved with it. Um, but I, I think the, the general uh, the population of deer hunters need to know that we go to bat for them almost on a daily basis with regard to uh, rules and regulations concerning deer management, uh, season lengths, ag limits, uh, uh, poaching fines we've been involved in all of that, and if we hadn't been, they would have lost access to properties, they would have uh, lost in a number of ways, maybe even in the eyes of the non-hunting public. Uh, I think what we've done uh, through our organization, we have we've, we've Brought the hunter to the forefront in people's opinions to see that we are good stewards of the land and the resource, and that uh, we police our own ranks, and we couldn't afford not to do that. But our organization, I think, has, has gone to great lengths to protect the rights and and the access of hunters uh, across the board. So, yeah. It is for everybody, Uh, even somebody hunting on a relatively small piece of property that they they just have permission to hunt on. They need to know that we're standing behind them, uh, legislatively especially, to make sure they can still have access to those properties.
1: Yeah. Well, I certainly fall into that camp. Um, not having, uh, not owning any land myself and just hunting small parcels. And, uh, I certainly know that there are benefits, uh, to being involved with the quality deer management association. And, uh, I certainly appreciate the work you guys are doing, but, uh, real quick now, before we move on to anything
3: new, I want to take a quick second to thank our partners at Whitetail Properties. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Tony Hansen. A land specialist out of Michigan, and Tony is going to be telling us about what factors matter most on a property in high pressure areas.
5: Well, to me, it's it's variety. So even though I, I mean I own and kind of hunt a lot of small properties, you you got to look for a mix of things. You need you need food for sure, but you need cover probably even more. So you know I need to have all of the pieces that the deer needs because I don't want them traveling very far and I don't want them to feel like they have to travel very far Um, because you know especially during our gun season when there's you know nearly a million guys out there if a a deer moves it's it's got a real Mm -hmm. good chance of getting shot so I try to find properties that have everything you need right there and yes neighborhood matters but It doesn't matter quite as much as what you can, you know, do right there on your own property. So you want to make sure that you have food and cover and, um, you know, bedding areas, security places, and sanctuaries are a big thing uh, with me too. So I look for a lot of variety in the the properties. If you'd like to
3: learn more and to see the properties that Tony currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash Hanson. That's H-A-N. Um, I want to kind of shift
1: gears a little bit here, um, because obviously based on what we've just heard, you've had a long and and kind of storied history when it comes to your involvement with deer hunting and deer management uh, and conservation, all these different types of things. And you recently have kind of compiled, um, oh, I guess a, a collection of some of those thoughts and stories and experiences of that history. Um, in a book, that book being Fire Pot Stories, which um, which came out earlier this year. And I want to hear a little bit about that book, um, but something I want to ask you first, um, because I think within the pages of this book, I, I haven't read the entire book yet, I've read portions of it, um, but from what I've seen so far, I think you answer the question I'm about to ask. I think you answer it within the pages of this book, spread out over the entire book. But I'm curious if you can synthesize this in one answer, which is this, Joe: Why do you hunt? That's my question.
0: I was introduced to hunting at a very early age. My dad was a hunter, his dad was a hunter, so it just seemed to be the thing to do and then once I got uh, became involved in it, I fell in love with just being out of doors. And the challenges of, of learning all the critters that I was sharing the out of doors with, uh, not just by sight but by sound and I, I very quickly learned that the, the more that I knew about these critters, the more at home that I felt uh, when I was out of doors. Uh, Those of us that that started going into the woods before daylight as youngsters were afraid of everything, and uh, education taught me that uh, that I just am now a part of all these different goings-on in the outdoors. The other thing that that comes out of that is once you learn more about all these critters that you're spending time with uh, and you're in their habitat, you become more of a steward of them and their habitat. And that's what got me involved. That's what keeps me involved. And I'm still I'm 70 years old now. I'm, I'm a very active hunter. In fact, I spent the whole morning at our skin and shed processing a deer that's been hanging for about two weeks. And uh, we eat venison several times a week year-round, and I process all of my own meat. So I'm still very much involved in hunting. I've got two grandsons now, and uh, the oldest is six. He, he, I think, is a little bit too young to have a gun, but he has been with us a number of times this year. Um, went out rattling one morning about oh, just a few weeks ago and, and rattled in a buck. It was the first deer he'd ever seen in the woods. So what story does he have to tell the rest of his life that the first deer he saw, his grandfather rattled in? (laughs) Um, And then uh, a deer was shot in the neighborhood recently, and the the hunter couldn't find it. And I took my tracking dog out uh, that night with uh, not just my two grandsons, but two of their cousins. Uh, everybody had a flashlight, we had the dog on a lead, and we we trailed on and on and on and found the deer, and everybody was asked to bow their head and have a moment of silence to uh, pay tribute to the animal. And and then we dragged it out, took it to the skinning shed, and field dressed it, hung it in the cooler to age for a few weeks. So they, we're getting them involved in hunting activities without even guns being involved uh, on their part. So that's how I came on board, and I think that's the way to get these youngsters involved. They need to understand the entire process uh, of of hunting and and processing the meat and sharing it with family and friends and that kind of thing. So that's a long way to answer your question, why did I hunt? Uh, I think genetically it, it was instilled within me that I had to, and once I got a taste of it, uh I just stayed with it.
1: Yeah. So so then uh so that's why you hunt. Why did you write this book? Why put this book together and what, what is it kind of comprised of? What's found in those pages?
0: Uh, I've been a great disciple of Aldo Leopold, who is the father of my profession. Uh, he passed away when I was only a year old, but he was the first professor of wildlife biology in ever at the University of Wisconsin. And he wrote a book entitled A Sand County Almanac. And his teachings were that those of us that were in the profession, and this was pre-television, needed to meet with our constituents on a regular basis. And those were the hunters we worked with and for and educate them any way possible, either through public speaking or writing articles for local newspapers or even doing uh, radio shows. And then when I got to the University of Georgia, the professors that I had there were uh, certainly disciples of Leopold as well and and they all talked about the importance of writing. so, My writing days go back to my days at the University of Georgia, and the earliest entry in my book was a newspaper article I wrote in 1972, so only a few years ago did I realize that I've been uh, amassing a pretty good variety of stories uh, about hunting and fishing and some very biologically oriented stories or articles. And I thought, well, if I corral these things together, I might have enough to make a book. So uh, I put my outline together and started filling in the gaps. And and I, I wrote some stories in, in the last few years to fill in those gaps. But I now have a book comprised of 10 chapters with 76 stories. And as you know already, Mark, in having read a sampling of those, some of are... Uh, are very uh, scientifically oriented, uh, management oriented. Others are just funny stories uh, that have occurred over the years of hunting and fishing. And uh, when I was talking with Jeff Foxworthy about uh, a request for him to put a quote on the back cover of my book, I told him that uh, for a person that I know has walked into a covey of wild quail, and flush them and watch them fly that many directions. Only now can you appreciate the many directions my stories have flown. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's just the, the way to sum it up. I mean, I, it's a very unique book, in that, uh, first of all, I wrote some of the stories long enough ago. And I learned that I was not altogether right on some topics. I was a little too light with my approach to the importance of coyotes, for example. And I went back to at least six stories and and did sort of a Paul Harvey approach, which he had a a radio program and he called his the rest of the story. I called mine the follow-up. And in some cases, my follow-up was longer than my original story, but I was able to revisit those original stories written 20 or 25 years ago and bring them up to date and, and uh, correct the things that I was wrong about and even uh, boast a little bit about the predictions I made that came true. Uh, so I've got about six stories that, that have a follow-up to them, uh, I think the most unique part of the book is that it has chapter one at both ends. <laughs> and how did that happen? Well, uh, when I got to, to the end of my journey and I realized that I had my book, I needed a way to close it. I didn't want to say goodbye. This is the end. And I spent a long while on some property that I grew up hunting on in North Carolina And I realized that was chapter one in my life. And I've been fortunate now, having lived long enough, that I've hunted with and and I have friends in four different generations that have hunted on that very property. And so that property was chapter one in their lives as well. So that's how that last chapter got its name and the way that I, I closed it I was on a a youth turkey hunt that particular morning, and after the hunt was over, I sat on the porch of a cabin all the rest of the day trying to decide how to end this book. And it only happened after I got in my truck uh, very late in the afternoon and and made the four-mile drive out to the highway at a very slow pace with my windows down so I could listen to nature. And I was, I was hearing a variety of birds. I was hearing a variety of uh, frogs, like spring peepers and and uh, narrow-mouth toads, and on and on. And, and realizing that all these little tiny critters that were about an inch long, these little frogs were very site specific in where they lived, and I knew that, and and I was able to ride along could have even ridden with my eyes closed with a, a, a mental map of where I was riding along because this particular frog stays in, in a stream, this particular frog stays in a little pool that might dry up and then they move on and on. But I got to the highway and I thought, hmm, this is, this is an exercise in education. And there will never, ever be a final exam. So there's the challenge. Keep learning and keep appreciating nature. The more you know, the more you'll appreciate it. The more you know, the stronger you'll work as a steward to protect it. And that's how I ended the book, was with a challenge rather than saying goodbye, this is the end. This is actually the beginning. Um, So... There's everything in between. There are some stories that will make you laugh. There are some that will make you cry. There will be some that will teach you some things you didn't know before, and that's always a good thing. So mm-hmm. I, there's something in that book for everybody, but there's not everything for everybody.
1: As it should um, be. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, that's right.
1: There's a there's a chapter within the book um, that I read, and it spoke about the path of a hunter and kind of this, um, this evolution towards you know, developing the hunter's spirit. Um, could you talk a little bit about that, what that means, about that path of the hunter, the hunter's spirit, and, and kind of your thoughts on that and, and this journey that many of us hunters go through and why that's so important?
0: Well, I, there are about five major stages that you go through, and I'm not going to list all five of those, but I'll start with the first one and it's one that uh, Aldo Leopold referred to as the trigger itch stage where people want to go out and get their limit. They want to kill as many as they can legally, and, uh, and numbers are important. Shooting is important. You learn through time and, and hopefully through the experiences and with the influence from our elders that that's maybe not necessarily the approach to take. You become more custodial or you become a better steward as you're going through these different stages. And, and the final stage you get to is, is one of, of ultimate stewardship where you start looking more toward photography or artwork to, to stay in touch with, with hunting you take on more responsibility to act as a mentor, to bring youngsters on board, and, and that's where I am now. I, I'm much more excited about taking youngsters and introducing them to, to hunting and just being out of doors than, than ever before. And then there are all those different steps in between. There is not a, uh, a recipe on how long you would stay on each plateau it might take you several years to progress from that first uh, shooter's stage or that one with trigger itch to the next one and then to level three and to level four and then finally to level five. The speed at which you go through that is not as important as the the path and the direction. If you, If you have an unwavering path going through those different plateaus you're becoming a, a, a better steward along the way and a better representative of the hunting fraternity. So uh, I mentioned that in, in a couple of different stories in the book, but uh, that is the hunter's path. It's sort of a natural progression to just get better and better and better at what you do. At, but there's an old saying, you live and learn. Some people only live and don't learn, and some hunters get involved in hunting and never change. They stay in that trigger-it stage right on through the whole process. And that's that's unfortunate for them. It's unfortunate for hunting that there are people like that. But it's incumbent upon us that, that uh, recognize the educational process to bring them into the fold and to help. Lead the way by example and by through education to, to get them to appreciate what they have access to. So that's that's the hunter's path, and it's it's mentioned twice in, in different stories
1: in the book. Yeah, and I think you do. I think you do a nice job of, of illustrating that journey throughout, as you said, throughout the book. It's it's kind of woven through many of your stories in, in different ways, um, and then I think another example of. Of a way to educate ourselves about some of those elements of the hunter's path, and that stewardship, is another book that you mentioned earlier. That being a, a Sand County Almanac by Aldo Leopold. I think uh, many of those um, core tenets of becoming a steward and of taking those steps as a hunter, I think those are discussed and, and shown throughout Aldo's story as well. I think a perfect example of that being um, one of Leopold's lessons learned, you know, in in his essay "Thinking Like a Mountain." Where he spoke about um, a topic you mentioned earlier, that being predators, and how he had, you know, as a young kid, had always thought, "I'll oh, just shoot every wolf or coyote would be a good thing." You know, he thought it was fun to kill them, and you know, every fewer wolves there'd be more deer. Um, and then he kind of had this aha moment as he started to understand how all of these things are are more interconnected than that. And that, um, you know, there was a place for all these different pieces and parts of the ecosystem, wolves and deer and humans and all of those things um, as, as one part of a whole. Um, why does the Sand County Almanac resonate with you so much? Because um, I know you've mentioned it quite a few times, both in this book and um, in past times I've heard you speak. Why is that something that you think hunters should uh, should look to as another source of of knowledge and direction?
0: Well, I, I, I mentioned the importance a minute ago of uh, mentoring, and it, if you had to read any one book that was available uh, as, as a book that would mentor you through the different steps of hunting, it would be a County Almanac because it, it talks about uh, your role as, as a hunter and a manager uh, and not a despoiler of wildlife. And, and, and it 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 reinforces that necessity to be a good steward of our natural resources um, and just one example after another in the, in that book and it just teaches you how to uh, be aware of your surroundings. Uh, my book by comparison uh, has all these stand alone stories uh leopold's book it, like most other books, is a progression of thought you just you, you flow from one to the next to the next to the next. My book has standalone stories with one exception. I have one story that has a sequel to it. then I have one chapter that's a trilogy, and it's all about one person that I grew up hunting with uh, a fellow that was part Cherokee Indian from the Appalachian region of North Carolina and he was the ultimate storyteller for one thing and uh, I probably got some of my storytelling from being around him so much in my early years but uh, aside from that trilogy and then that one story uh, that has a sequel to it, all the other stories are stand alone so if the stories were published uh, I put at the end of that story when and where, whether it was a magazine or a newspaper article or whatever. But there are a number of stories in there and some transcripts from talks that I had given uh, here in the States and in Australia. And I, I put that transcript in as a story. Uh, so therein lies the variety. Uh, in this book. I mean, it, it goes in every direction, but uh, Leopold was was a person that I'd, I wish I had known. I got to know him through uh, his writings, and I can only hope that I'll be remembered that same way uh, many years from now, because I'd, I just felt it important to take all that I knew about hunting and put it between two covers. Yeah, and I, I think I've done that uh, for this book, and and I think it's important that you uh, can enjoy any experience that's outdoors related, and even uh, down to reading uh, about hunting. It it can be funny, and it can and should be fun. Uh, it should be enjoyable. Uh, the more you. Understand about it, the more you're going to do it correctly and enjoy it more fully so that that's leopold's influence on me, and I hope my influence comes through to the readers of of my book as well
1: mm-hmm. so so speaking of that book then and of <clears throat> the power of of story uh, because in many cases the things you 've talked about here there there these you know, lessons learned, these important things to, uh, to think about as far as becoming stewards. All these things many times are conveyed through a story. And, uh, man, I'm a glutton for stories. I, I remember as a little kid going up to our family deer camp, um, there, was a, there was a guy who went up to our camp with us. His name was Terry, and he was probably 25 or 30 maybe, and I was like 8 years old at the time. And I would just follow him around all day at camp. I'd sit next to him in the truck when we were driving up to camp. I would sit next to him in the cabin. And, and every second there wasn't talking happening, I would just say, Hey, can you tell me a deer hunting story? Can you tell me your story? Can you tell me the story of your first buck? Can you tell me the story of how you killed your you know this buck? Um, and maybe that's why I'm doing what I'm doing today. I'm asking people to, uh, to tell their own stories still now uh, many, many years later. But I guess the point of me saying all that, Joe, is... Out of your book and these many different experiences and stories you shared, um, is there a favorite story or or a hunting story in your life that stands out the most um, that you could share with us? Any story that stands out to you would be would be pretty interesting to me.
0: Oh my goodness, they're they're all favorites for that matter. <laughs> right. Um, one one was very humorous and and it's entitled the upside-down goat I, I was probably 14 years old or so at the time, 15 maybe and we had killed a deer on this property near my hometown in southeastern North Carolina and I didn't know anything about skinning or gutting or anything and in those days uh, when the club killed a deer they processed it that day uh, immediately after the hunt. So I was standing around uh, in this little this shelter uh, on a on an old abandoned farm and and watching the process. They first of all skinned the deer and they gutted it and, and I was standing there with my hands in my pockets and all of a sudden something hit me from behind and I landed on my back and looked up and I was staring at the chin of a big wide-horned billy goat and <laughs> Everybody around laughed at what had happened. I was, well, I was just embarrassed to the nth degree. And I hunted on that property for a number of years, and that goat was always there, and he was always hiding behind something and waiting until you got out into the open before he attacked you. (laughs) So I I had invited a cousin of mine down uh, from Fayetteville, which is near Fort Bragg, uh, he wasn't a hunter at all, but I said, come on down, spend the weekend with me, and I'll take you deer hunting, and back in those days, it was dog hunting only in eastern North Carolina. Nobody still hunted, um, and so I, I said, you come with me, and I'll put you on the stand, and we'll stay there until lunchtime, and then we'll come out and have sardines and crackers and cheese for lunch, and then we'll hunt that way again in the afternoon. Well, we went through the the old barnyard where there were uh, a few hogs running around and didn't see the Billy Goat. I had mentioned him, and we hunted for a few hours and came back through the barnyard and and had gotten to the very middle of the opening. And my cousin said, "There he is! Here he comes!" And there was an old abandoned car there in the in the farmyard, we got up on top of that, and this goat was going around and around and around. We thought that was pretty funny, but we were held captive by this marauding goat. And then all of a sudden, the goat jumped to the hood of the car and then to the top and was standing between us. Uh, Not enough room for a big, wide-horned billy goat and, and two youngsters. We peeled off the car. And made a mad dash for the gate, which was about a hundred yards away, and uh, it got almost to the gate. The the goat was closing the distance, and I grabbed a low hanging limb and swung up into the tree. My cousin missed the limb, <laughs> so he and the goat were going around and around this tree. <laughs> All the while, he kept extending his hand, and said, "Pull me up, pull me up." Well. I'm not a fool. It's going to be much easier for him to pull me down than for me to pull him up. And I said, you, you just got to do it yourself. Do it like I did. Just climb the tree. So we finally got together up in the tree. And then the other hunters started gathering at the gate, only to see the two of us in this tree with the goat going around and around us. Uh, very humiliating. <laughs> but... um uh, I uh, I put a picture in that article of a goat, and I turned him upside down to, to go along with the title. So there, there's some stories like that, that and I, I will say, all of these stories are true. They all happened the way I portrayed them. Some of the stories I put in there were told to me, and there may be some element of doubt as to how truthful they were from start to finish. But, like an old timer told me one time well, I just had to tell it like I heard it <laughs> and and I wrote it like I heard it in some cases but uh yeah there are there are a lot of stories like that uh there's some there's a turkey hunting story in there that uh just rather comical toward the end, and uh there's some good fishing stories, so as i said a while ago there's there's a little bit of something in there for everybody and uh, i just i just hope the readers enjoy the twisted journey through all my personal stories
1: mm-hmm. all right before we move on let's take a quick break to thank our partners at matthew's archery for their support of this podcast and as you might have seen on social media over the past few weeks matthew's has just launched their new flagship bow for 2018 the matthews triax and here with us to talk a little bit more about what the triax has to offer is matthews design engineer mark hayes
6: the triax is the result of an extremely focused goal that we had this year for 2018 and that was to make the stealthiest bow of all time and uh with that focused goal there's two things that we're looking at we're looking at the most efficient bow that we could possibly make and what that does is the lost energy in a bow is usually sound and vibration. So if you can make a bow as efficient as possible, you're going to lower the amount of energy that you have to actually deal with. Once we lowered that with our EHS and the new position, which we're calling 3D dampening, that bow is the quietest and most vibration-free bow that we've ever made, and we're, we're seeing it now, once the bows are hitting the shops now, and people are experiencing it, that the Halon was a great, great platform. But and it's hard to believe that the the vibration could get better, but it it is noticeably better. And it's fun to see people's reactions on that. It's it was built for close quarters. Um, you know, us Eastern guys were in Midwest. We're used to blinds and tree stands, and you know the geometry of the bow is. Uh, good for that obviously it is a short bow um axle to axle now it feels like a bigger bow with our uh our short limbs and our big cams and everything but it is amazing how easy that is to to carry around and how maneuverable it is and that was kind of a byproduct of our first goal was to just make the stealthiest killing machine of all time really so the newest thing what people will definitely see is that 3d dampening we move that damper out in front um of the bow and if you could imagine a twisting motion our dampers were normally you know underneath the hand uh, and you don't get the full rotation in that twisting for that damper to work so by moving it out we're using all three directions that's where 3D comes from to really dampen that energy and that's why the user cannot feel it when they actually shoot it's really incredible.
1: If you'd like to learn more about the Matthews Tracks you can visit www.MatthewsInc.com com you you mentioned uh how back in those days it was just hunting with dogs most of what you guys did um and that's something that's very unique to the south um being a michigander up here in the, the northern part of the country i am i'm far removed from the culture of hunting in the south um and sometimes i i uh i uh what's the word i'm looking for here i don't give our southern members of our audience enough attention as far as things that are that are happening for them and, and the the culture of hunting that they're a part of down there. Can you speak a little bit about that? What it's what it's been like as a hunter down south? How that might be different than some of the things we've experienced in, in my neck of the woods up here, um, and maybe in particular, I'd be curious to hear about um, dog hunting and, and how that's a part of the culture down there and, and some different things along those lines. Well,
0: I I think we're probably uh inherited that style of hunting from our European ancestors. Um, but, but dog hunting has, has been a part of our tradition for as long as we've been settled in, in, in this part of the world. When I grew up, as I mentioned, it was, it was dog hunting only in eastern North Carolina. Uh, I've, I've been around long enough to see that change to, to the point now that uh, there are not many people still dog hunting for a long list of reasons. Number one, uh, they, they don't like to be able to, to keep a big pack of dogs, and, and the other is their, their hunting properties have gotten smaller and smaller, and all the while the, uh, the problems with neighbors have increased over time. Uh, by comparison, when, when I hunted, uh, the, the loose-knit club that I hunted with um, hunted about a seven or 800-acre tract bordering the Cape Fear River, and nobody to our left or right or south of us hunted at all. So if our dogs left our property uh, in pursuit of a deer, Uh, They were usually back within a few hours, for one thing, the deer would make a big loop and come back, but it didn't bother anybody. Uh, If the dogs ran the deer to the river and crossed the river, then there was a club over there as well who did the same thing. Uh, We had their dogs running deer across the river to our side of the river, so that was not a problem. But. That has changed over time to the point that every single property that's hunted has a neighboring hunter on it. And, and what's changed is that there are more and more people that still hunt who don't appreciate having dogs run through their properties. So that's, that's been the biggest change that's happened with, with dog hunting. Um, I will pat the, the dog hunters on the, on the back and congratulate them in Georgia A few years ago, they realized that they were on thin ice, and uh, a faction of of their leadership met with legislators, and they came up with a set of guidelines, I, I think a minimum acreage and different ways that they were to police themselves, and they essentially saved dog hunting in the eastern part of Georgia by having those guidelines. Um, still hunting uh, is, is very strong these days in that part of the world but dog hunting is too I, I see that dog hunting is changing in all these other states as well uh, and it's, it's, it's probably going by the wayside quicker than those that are participating in it would like to see but it's because they're not sticking to a set of guidelines like the Georgia deer hunters set up for themselves. Dog hunting is still popular in eastern Virginia, uh, eastern North Carolina, eastern South Carolina, uh, Florida, and then some of the Gulf Coast states uh, all the way around through Louisiana. Um, a number of years ago, they, they stopped dog hunting in east Texas and, um, because of the conflicts with with other hunters and other landowners, neighboring landowners, so it's a it's sort of a dying art, a dying tradition, and uh, it it'll last in in certain pockets because of large enough acreage to participate in that, but I, I see those acreages changing to the to the negative side; they're getting smaller and smaller over time, so. It was the way to hunt at one time, and it's it, it's now has been taken over by steel hunting, which has become the way to hunt. Uh, I've seen archery and muzzle loading hunting uh, gain in tremendous popularity over the years. Uh, so if you look at deer hunting in the last 20 or 50 or 75 years, it, change has been the bottom line to all of that and we just have to keep up with that change with, with the demands of the future and and uh, we have to accept that some of these traditions uh, wear thin and, and maybe uh, it's time for them to go on the shelf but uh, but that's just a natural progression it's just the thing that's, that's happening uh, whether social problems are causing that or biological problems or whatever it's just we have always faced change we've we've gotta keep facing it
1: yeah very true, very true
0: yeah
1: so so for those still hunting right now, and when I <laughs> Two things. Number one, when you were referring to still hunting back there, um, when you were speaking about the differences in hunting, you were you were speaking more about you know, hunting from a stand or staying still, right? Not like the stalking type hunting. Or am I misinterpreting that? Yeah,
0: there are there's some terminology that's different north and south. Uh, up your way, still hunting is stalking, yep. and down our way. Uh, Another way to to describe stalking, uh, a good friend of mine calls it slipping and tipping.
1: <laughs> I like that. Uh, <laughs>
0: uh, it's moving. Uh, most people move too quickly and see a lot of white flashes and don't kill many deer uh, with that technique. You have to be able to move with stealth, uh, very quietly always stop in a shadow, uh, always hunt into the wind or on, on a crosswind, and never, never, never be in a hurry. Uh, there, there's one exception to that, and I've got that in my book, uh, in a story called Stalk, Look, Listen, and I used a little hand diagram of an old-timey railroad crossing, which used to say, stop, look, listen, I called mine Stalk Look Listen, and it was designed for uh, for the rut. So the thing for you to do is to move rather quickly through the woods and keep your ears wide open for that telltale sound of a uh, a courtship in progress. If you hear a buck grunting, and if the buck chases the doe through an opening beyond your range, wait till they're gone and then move there quickly because realizing the doe's small home range she'll likely circle around and come right back through there you'll be in a better position to make a good assessment of the buck shoot it if it's mature enough and it's what you want or you know for sure he's chasing a, an adult deer so you can you can take the antlers deer but uh, that's the one time where you would stalk quickly all the other times you just need to s- to slow it down and, and stalk very slowly. But uh, yeah, there's one difference north and south. Uh, when we talk about still hunting down here, we're referring to sitting still um, on a stand that's uh, either freestanding or in a tree or now, m- more recently, in a ground blind. Uh, that's our definition of still hunting. We sit there and wait for the deer to come to us. Mhm.
1: So so speaking yep. of of tactics and things along those lines for those uh down in the southern half of the country or down, you know, even more regionally maybe by you whether they're hunting South Carolina or North Carolina or anywhere around there. Um for those guys that are still hunting in the late season, do you have any general advice for um for success at this time of year now that we're into December, kind of on the downhill slide of the season?
0: <laughs> well, Down here, when we have a a four-and-a-half-month season, uh, by this time of the year, many hunters are looking forward to that last day. (laughs) (laughs) They're pretty well hunted out. Uh, I, on the other hand, am looking forward to these remaining two weeks because I've done everything I need to do for this year. I've pretty well taken care of the freezer. I'm going to hunt every opportunity I can because my trail cameras keep telling me that there are bucks out there that know my social security number. (laughs) That Not only have I not seen them, uh, my cameras have not seen them in the daytime. And uh, these deer are denizens of darkness. Uh, They operate almost totally on a nocturnal basis, and they have the whole season even with very low hunting pressure, but, but this, is, this is the bottom line to quality deer management. You go into the woods now knowing that those deer are there. In my early years, I went into the woods wishing and hoping that a deer of that caliber was there and, and didn't know that there was probably not a deer in the county where I was hunting that was a deer of my dreams. And if, if you look in the, in, in the very first page of my book, there's, a, there's a, a painting that a friend of mine's mother did years and years ago, and it's a, a decent eight-point buck chasing a doe. And the caption on that artwork was, the, the dreams I had as a beginning hunter became reality only. Through management and that's what we've done for ourselves we have created through quality deer management a situation where going hunting now has an element of promise sometimes a thin promise but an <laughs> element of excitement as well that those deer are there now it's up to you to show your prowess and to cross paths with that animal and the season may close without you ever seeing that animal. But you you see their tracks, you find their shed antlers after the season, you know they're there, you know they're gonna be there next year and even bigger next year. So for me, as a 70 year old, there's more excitement in hunting now than ever before. And, And I think it's incumbent upon us to share that with every youngster we can. Get them out there and let them know what's there. Uh, let them know that uh, none of this is by accident. It's all by design and good management, and it, and it's here because we've been good stewards.
1: Yeah, yeah, I love that. I think that's that's so true. Kind of along yeah. those lines, maybe. As we wrap things up here, um, I want I want to steal a question from a guy named Tim Ferriss that I follow, and he likes to ask this question to the guests of his podcast. I want to spin this one out to you, Joe. um, It's kind of a a concluding thought here. Uh, If you were given a billboard on the side of the highway, let's say maybe it's the side of the highway leading to a Bass Pro Shops or Cabela's, and and you knew there was going to be a lot of deer hunters passing by that billboard, what phrase or words, uh, what message would you put on that billboard for deer hunters to see?
0: Uh, I I, I tell you what, a a mental image would be a photograph or, or a painting of a hunter, an older hunter, sitting on a log next to a younger hunter, and that being viewed from behind. So you could in the foreground, you could see the log and the two hunters sitting there, and you could see a view down through a valley of what they were looking at. And the message would be: be a part of nature, become a good steward. Yeah. Usually, the the shorter the message, the stronger. hmm But I think the 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 message I like to convey. The other hunters and, and even to non-hunters, it, there's a heck of a lot to get out of being in the outdoors, <clears throat> whether you're sitting on a stump or sitting on a log, but the importance of sharing that not only with a fellow hunter, but especially with a young hunter, bring them on board so they can enjoy the things that you've long enjoyed, and just Enjoy being a part of nature and take pride in being a good steward. And, it, and as you mentioned, Mark, this was probably our, our closing comment. But I I needed to make a couple of comments about the availability of my book.
1: Was definitely going to have to ask you about that for sure. So please do tell us.
0: Um. Well, number one, it's available uh, online. Through the QDMA, just go to our website, qdma.com, go to the store, to books, and you can order it that way. You can call our toll-free number at our headquarters in Georgia, and that's 800-209-3337. The other way is to order it from Amazon. Just go to amazon.com. Type in Firepot Stories and you can order it that way. The third way is to get it directly from me. And if you choose to take that route, I can personalize it, I can sign it to you or to someone you want to gift the book to. Uh, you just need to contact me through my email, which is jhamilton at qdma.com. I'll be glad to I'll put it in the mail to you uh with it signed to you i'll put my name on it and a date so those are the three ways terrific Um, well i really thank you for this opportunity it's uh it's always good to talk with with fellow deer hunters uh locally and far away I, i wish i could maintain eye contact while we were talking but uh That'll that'll have to happen in the future
3: yes,
1: absolutely it's always great to hear from you Joe and and I'd like to to thank you as well definitely appreciate your time sharing these stories and experiences with us and um, I think you know if I think it's evidence simply from this conversation anyone hearing this that um, that what you have to say and that what you've put out on paper is worth uh, worth taking a look at hearing about and reading so uh, definitely recommend everyone check out the book. And Joe, thank you, and uh, best of luck with the rest of your season chasing those uh, denizens of the darkness.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Mark, and and just I just want all the listeners to know that the Quality Deer Management Association is an organization that started uh, almost thirty years ago. In fact, 2018 is our 30th anniversary. Uh, the bottom line is, we are an organization. For all deer hunters that that's our bottom line we're looking out for you uh your future is our future so if you're not a member become one and i think it'll be a decision that you'll be happy you made so mark thanks again for your time and i look forward to seeing you sounds, soon enough
1: sounds great joe thank you and that's going to wrap it up for us here today a uh, couple usual reminders: uh, If you haven't yet, we we certainly would appreciate it if you could leave a rating or review for this podcast on iTunes. It just takes a, a minute or less. If you could, you know, give us a star rating, whatever you think we deserve. Give us some feedback. That's something that we can use to uh, try to make this podcast better in the future. So we'd love to see what you think. Um, also, make sure that you're following Wired to Hunt across all of our different platforms you know this wired hunt isn't just a podcast i also run a website we've got a lot of things going on on facebook and instagram and videos on youtube so make sure you're following wired hunt across all those different places and uh, then i guess finally we do want to thank our partners who help make this podcast possible so big thank you to sitka gear yeti coolers matthews archery maven optics the whitetail institute of north america trophy ridge and Hunterra maps. And finally, most importantly, thank you to everyone out there listening. Appreciate your support. I appreciate you being a part of this community. And hopefully you are still hitting the woods hard trying to fill some final tags of the season. And assuming you are, I wish you all the luck in the world. And until next time, stay wired to hunt.